this evening, I would like to look at Buddhahood, awakening, and compassion. But first, to kind of look in different way at this subject. Recently, I read a book, and it was a different about a group, not a Buddhist group, but the, this uh, spiritual group was all about enlightenment. And the whole book was about this, enlightenment. And the method was eradication of the ego. And it seemed that the benefit that was talked about doing this was intensity and belonging. And the book was about 120 pages. And at no point in it, although it was a book about enlightenment, there was any talk about wisdom and compassion whatsoever. And I thought, hmm, this is a strange kind of enlightenment. <laughs> I really could not feel any connection to it. I, really, I was not interested to join this group, to jump ship and join the group. <laughs> then if I think about many years ago, Stephen was interested, uh, very keen, still very keen, on this fellow called Nyanya Vira. And he's a, a monk. Uh, he was English, but he went to Sri Lanka and he became a monk very, very early on there. And he wrote a book <coughs> called Clearing the Path. And Stephen is very keen on this book. And so he was so keen that I thought, I need to read this, you know. So I start to read the book, and then I find it so gloomy because it was all about getting out, getting out of the world, getting out of samsara, and it was really gloomy. And I thought, hmm, this is not my kind of Buddhism, and I dropped the book. I did not continue. It was too, I felt it was too pessimistic, too negative. Then, if I look in the Zen tradition, I was a Zen nun for 10 years, and all around me, because it was a Rinzai school, everybody was into awakening. This was it. You know, you had to awaken. You had to have a breakthrough. Awakening. This was the big thing there. And I, was, and I would be there doing my uh, meditation and thinking, well, I don't mind. If uh, awakening, you know, hit me, I'm, I don't mind. I have nothing against it. <laughs> but really, what I'm really concerned about is wisdom and compassion. So I would say, in a way, my theme is wisdom and compassion. And so in a way, when we practice, when we kind of look, what is this Buddhahood? What is this awakening? What is this enlightenment? In a way, we also have to look in terms of our own experience. What is my aspiration? What is it I aspire to? What is it that motivates me? What is it that gives direction to my life? You could have somebody telling you he has the greatest enlightenment in the universe, and you might not be interested in it, you know, whatever he says about it, you know, because it's not this kind of enlightenment that you are looking for. Then if I look at Buddhahood, in Buddhism, Buddhahood has been as kind of like, there is kind of like an arc, they're kind of like a kind of a process. There have been a development. 
And first, you had the historical idea of Buddhahood, that you had, you know, the Buddha, Gautama Buddha, and he had the great, great, great top, top awakening. And in order to have that top, top, top awakening, he went through many, 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 many lifetimes as a bodhisattva, many, many lifetimes. He cultivated, he cultivated, he cultivated. And then, in his last life, he had to be born in a male body to be awakened. <laughs> and I'm personally, I have some problem with gendered awakening, you know? <laughs> But we leave it there. We leave it there. <laughs> then you had the other, the, the next idea about Buddhahood was that it was like a seed, that with each person, there would be seed of the Buddha. So what you had to do is water the seed, feed the seed, remove the weed. And then over one lifetime, so then the time gets shorter here, over one lifetime, you could become a Buddha, not the Buddha in the male body, but at least a Buddha in whatever body you find yourself in. Personally, I think this is a little of an improvement, especially for ladies. <laughs> then you had the next idea, which is the idea of the actuality of the Buddhahood. There is this idea that actually all of us in this room, we are Buddhas already. With not even a, a, a seed, it's an actuality. Each of us is a Buddha already. But our problem is that we don't see it. <laughs> That's a little problem there. <laughs> and so I would say, you see, often this idea of the seed, this idea of the actuality, people kind of see them in opposition. Personally, I would say that the two ideas actually complement each other and they bring me to this idea of sudden and gradual that you find in the Zen tradition. From, for uh, 1400 years, there have been this debate, this debate, is awakening and practice sudden, sudden, this is a subitist approach, or is it sudden and gradual? And of course, the sudden, sudden are better, and the sudden gradual are really little down there. And the idea is that there is sudden awakening and sudden practice. And the other idea is that there is sudden awakening and a gradual practice. And personally, I was uh, trained in the family, the lesser family, where we believed <laughs> in sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. Personally, to me, sudden, sudden doesn't make much sense. Because if you look in the Zen text, you have these people who get to the monastery, they're told something, and they don't get it, then they practice for eight years, and then they get it. This doesn't seem to me very sudden, you know? I mean, <laughs> there seems to be a little of gradual practice before it. And then they continue to sit, so there seems to be some gradual after it too. But I will not question them. But I want to talk more about this sudden and gradual. And my teacher, Master Kuzan, was reputed. He's a Korean Zen master who now uh, died many years ago. And he was reputed to have had three awakenings. 
So you might think, well, one should be enough. You know, no, he got three. And what was interesting is that the last time in Korea, if you have a breakthrough, an awakening, you go to your teacher and you present a poem. And then the teacher says, yes, this, you know, you are on the right path. Yeah, this is, he authenticate the experience. And so Master Kuzan did it one time, second time. And then the third time, his teacher says to him, now you know more than me. You have experienced more than me. So now I become your disciple. Now you are my teacher. And I think it's very important to see that the teacher is actually there to make the student independent and even surpass the teacher. So, but what is interesting with Master Cousin, because I was with him for 10 years and we traveled together, is that even though he was reputed to have had three awakenings, to the end of his life, he meditated. And we would travel and he would meditate everywhere. You know, he would kind of always sit in the train, in the boat, in the plane. You know, and he would say, hey, come on, you have to meditate. And I would kind of read the paper and say, I'm tired. <laughs> but he would sit. And to me, what was uh, beautiful was before he died, just a few months before he died, his health was getting not so good. He was getting a little weak. And then we went to walk a little just so that he could have a little fresh air together. And at one point we sat, we stopped. And then he said, you know, even I don't know how I am going to be when I die. So then that's why I practice. And you too, you don't know. You should practice. And to me, this is what was so impressive, that although he had had many breakthrough achievement and long practice, he did not think that he, had, he, he got it, he got there, and he did not have anything to do, but there is still something to cultivate. There was still something to prepare himself for. And even to the last day of his life, he was practicing meditation. And so to me, the way I would look at uh, these different awakening is that there is, in all of our practice, there is this aspect of suddenness, that suddenly we have an experience, that in a way, in every moment, there is a potential to awaken. And for me, that means that there is a potential to degrasp. There is a potential to release. That is sudden. Suddenly, we're grasping at something, and the next second, we don't grasp anymore. And so we, we can have little degrasping, or we can have major degrasping. And very likely during this week, you had some releasing, you had some degrasping, suddenly, ah, you felt very different. You felt there was some openness, there was less solidity, less fixity. And I think this can happen at any moment. And this is a certain aspect of the practice that the potential is there at any moment. But at the same time, we have developed certain destructive, painful habits over many times, over many years. And so over time, in a way, we have built the power of these habits, certain mental habits, emotional habits, 
physical habits, relationship habits. And so over time, we feed them. And then they have more power. So in a way, one breakthrough is not going to be poof. This is not eradication. It's just kind of, you might see them, but it might not dissolve the power of this habit. And so that's why there is this gradual cultivation. So there is a sudden opening, sudden awakening, sudden degrasping, and then you have to practice gradually to dissolve the power of the habits so that they become much and more, much and much lighter and less intense. And so, in a way, when they come together, the sudden awakening helps us to open, helps us to dissolve, helps us to experience ourselves differently. And then, in a way, the gradual cultivation helps us to integrate that disgrasping, to also to continue to dissolve over time. And in a way, we have to actualize, we have to actualize this awakening. We have to actualize this breakthrough. Because we have the breakthrough, we see something differently, but then does it make a difference? This is in the way we can have the experience, the sudden experience, but that is it going to really make a transformation in our daily life, the way we are with ourselves, the way we are with others. When I was doing my research for Buddhist women, I was in Korea and I, many years ago, and I met this nun. And I asked her, what is your practice? And she said, my practice is to be a Buddha. And so our practice was that because she believed in the Avatamsaka Sutta that Stephen mentioned, where it says, all sentient beings are Buddhas, all Buddhas are sentient beings. So she thought, well, I am a Buddha. I am a sentient being, I am a Buddha then my practice is to be a Buddha. So in the morning, she would do a little uh, meditation, and then she would, she's a teacher in a Buddhist university, and then her practice is to be a Buddha, to have the wisdom and the compassion of the Buddha as she go about her day. And then when she comes back home in the evening, she checks how much Buddha-like had she been, how much sentient being like as she'd be. And then she starts again. And so I would say, in our practice and in our life, we are at the crossroad of two dimensions, of the certain aspect and then on the horizontal aspect. And so I think it's, we have to be very careful not to think that the only dimension to our practice, which would also be in our life, is the depth. I think it's that important to have the width, to have the horizontal dimension. And I would say that it be in our practice, in our life, we are at the crossroad of that sudden opening and at the same time that gradual practice. And that's why I think it's such a rich, a rich undertaking, a rich cultivation. And that's why I think one has to be careful when we leave this retreat, to not think that the way I'm going to meditate, especially, is going to be the same as here. It's very important to see that when we are on retreat, 
We are in very narrow circumstances, very narrow condition. We are in silence, there is a group, there is a schedule, we don't have any work, we have very little responsibility. So within these narrow circumstances, we can go into the depth of the practice and then we can experience some calm, some clarity. But then when we go into our daily life, we go into the width of the practice where the conditions are really multiple. All kinds of things are happening much wider than here. And then we have to cultivate the width and we have to see that our meditation will not be the same as on retreat. And often that's why one doesn't sit in meditation at home often or give it up because you sit, you know, <laughs> nothing happened, but really even worse than on retreat. And generally the first two minutes are the best. You find the posture, the first two minutes, oh yes, that's a taste of meditation. Mm, yes, yes, meditation, I like this, it's good for me. <laughs> and then within two minutes you think about what happened yesterday, what's going to happen later, and there is not much one seems to think meditation. So I think it's very important to see that when we sit at home, we actually sit for three reasons. One is to stop, so we learn to be instead of always moving. Then it reminds us of our value, what we think is important, wisdom, compassion, mindfulness, awareness. And then we try to cultivate concentration, looking deeply, to the degree we can within the circumstances. So it will be less deep, but we still can do it. We still can come back time to time to the breath, to the sound, to the body. Then I wanted to talk a little about meditative experiences <coughs> and to look a little at them, a little from the kind of, in a way, the prism of sudden and gradual. So, for example, one, one thing that one might experience on meditation retreat is to feel quiet and clear. You sit and suddenly you feel very calm and at the same time very clear. And I was trying to say how to be with that the other, the other day. But personally, I think about this kind of thing that it kind of... Uh, nourishing because it helps us to feel differently. It helps us to feel, ah, I am not always confused and agitated. Ah, I can be very quiet. I can be very clear. This is possible for me. And I think at that level it's very nurturing because it's again a little degrasping. And at the same time that experience of feeling differently. And at the same time to see that it's more likely to happen on a retreat because of the narrow circumstances. That you can have that experience in daily life, but not necessarily when you sit on your cushion. But maybe when you stop throughout your day and just for two minutes, you just stop and very aware. And again, you could have that experience or when you're in nature or in different ways. But then it would generally be very brief. But again, to be nurtured by that little moment of degrasping. Then you can have an insight. And this is, you know, called insight meditation. And generally this is one of the 
the aim, you know, I need to have an insight. I'm in insight meditation retreat. If I don't have an insight, I've got a problem. <laughs> and so, yes, I mean, time to time, we can have an insight. But I think we have to be careful not to think that the insight is like, you know, this wham bang insight written large in gold letter in the sky. But that it's more, an insight is more something that was on, in front of our nose, but we were blind to it. And suddenly through the meditation, the scale goes down and we see, ah, we see something we've not seen before. Or we see something in a different way. And when you have the insight, it's very clear. It's really so sharp. You see something so clearly. But what we have to see is that this is impermanent. So that you will have it, you will be aware of it, and after what you have is a memory of it. But it does not mean that that memory cannot be, in a way, with you and that you cannot try to apply it in your daily life. Recently I had a, a young man come to me on a weekend retreat, very excited. And he came, ah, this is amazing, I'm so happy. My thoughts are not me. This is so wonderful. It, it looked like he had had this experience that he was not his thought. He was not identifying with his thought and he could just see them arising, passing away, and it's not me. So he did not feel so confined. And so for him, it was a wonderful experience. The slight problem is that he wanted this to last forever after. <laughs> I said, possibly not, possibly not. But having had the experience, it would help him later on, possibly not to be so identified with all he thought all of the time. Or if I think of another a uh, person who came on another retreat and she had been uh, depressive for some time and then she was getting better doing mindfulness, etc. But she still said, you know, at night she would have terrible nightmare. So she would say, you know, she was on the retreat and the first night she came to me and said, oh, the next morning I was terrible. I had all this nightmare and all this monster and oh, I could not sleep, you know, one, oh, I was so bad. And then, you know, I was talking about the grasping, creative engagement, etc. And then she had another night and I thought, you know, I was very worried that she would have again a terrible night. So I went to see her. How was it? She said, oh, it was wonderful. I went to bed. The monster appeared. And I thought, ah, oh, it is a monster, but it's not my monster. <laughs> it appeared. It will pass away. I don't need to be worried about it. And it, poof, it went. And she had this wonderful light. And she said, ah, it's the first time I saw. This is not me. Or if I can um, think of an experience I had uh, when I was, I, uh, when I was in, uh, living in England in a community, and we used to do retreat uh, sometime in the year. And also I had my job at, the, at that time to earn my living was I was a house cleaner. And one of my problems as a house cleaner was when I went to the bathroom and I opened the toilet bowl and there would be a big one in it. <laughs> and I would, ah! <laughs> and so this day I was kind of doing the retreat and doing the house cleaning. And I go to the house cleaning, I open the toilet bowl and there is a big one in it. <laughs> and I see, hmm, hmm, 
It's a form. That's all it is. I still had to flush it because of my job. But what I found was interesting in that moment is that there was no grasping. There was no exaggeration. There was no proliferation. This is the most terrible thing in the world. No, it was just, ah, it's just a form. It arose upon condition. It will disappear upon other conditions. (laughs) But in a way, this kind of insight, you see something in a very different way. But then it goes. I mean, the, the clarity of it, the experience of it goes. But then as a memory, as a kind of a, a certain taste of something, when you see something ugly, often you have less of a reaction because you kind of broken through a little, that exaggeration. And then as you, in your daily life, you try to look at things in a different way, then slowly, slowly, the exaggeration, the proliferation can dissipate. Then you might have mystical experiences. And this is more kind of exhilarating. You're kind of sitting there and suddenly you feel this kind of, you know, nearly like there is this huge light. And then you feel like everybody has a Buddha nature. And you feel like totally, I mean, you know it, 150% that this is so true. And when you're sitting there, it's kind of amazing. Everybody has a Buddha nature. But then it passes and then can you see the Buddha nature in your neighbor? I mean, this is a gradual practice to kind of bring that experience, to bring that to, into the daily life. How do I look at myself? How do I look at others? And then there is this opening of the heart that often that happens in meditation. But again, we feel it, it really feels wonderful. And then it dissipates. And then how can we bring that opening of the heart in our daily life, in our relationship, at work, in our family? I mean, this is in a way the challenge. Personally, I think having the, having the experience is not that difficult. The, the sudden aspect, in a way, is not that difficult. What is difficult, actually, is a gradual practice, is how to integrate that experience that degrasping in our daily life. Or another thing that you have is jhanas, this absorptive state, you know, absorption. And I won't go into them because they're kind of very complicated and you have eight level and they're kind of more and more rarefied. And recently uh, I read a book about this. And I have nothing against the jhana, again, I mean, Anybody who wants them, they can have them, you know. (laughs) I won't keep them away from them. But I think, in a way, what we have to be careful with something which is so calibrated, so described. In this book, it's kind of described in so many different ways, which they're not agreeing on it, but never mind. (laughs) The problem is that it really categorizes experience. And I found, yesterday I was finding myself sitting there, and then I would have a little of a, kind of a moment of something, and then I would think, oh, is this a jhana? You know, and kind of, and I kind of, it's kind of like it, it, it introduces foreign element. Instead of just being in the meditation, in the situation with whatever rise, come, not, or whatever, it's like you introduce this kind of like kind of judging. I felt the judging mind was coming back in. 
easy sojana. Now it's not, I did not do that today, but <laughs> yesterday was funny to kind of, ah. Or it's the same in the Zen tradition. If you read a book like The, the Three Pillar of Zen by Kaplo Roshi, I would not recommend it. <laughs> Even if uh, Kaplo Roshi was a great person, because there is a whole middle section about awakenings. You have about all these people who have breakthrough and awakening and Kensho and Satori. And you kind of feel, feel sitting there saying, did I, have I had a Satori breakthrough? Mm, maybe I should have one, you know. Where is it? You know, and it's kind of like, I need to have one, I need to have one. You kind of start to think you have a problem because you have not got any. So I think we have to be a little careful in that way, not to use this description as a mean to judge our experience. I think what is really important is not so much the name we give to the experience, but the fact that we experience the degrasping. We experience seeing something differently, which then we can take into our daily life. So in a way, I think this gives us a kind of a direction, also a vision of a possibility. But we really need to live it in our daily life. To, I think this is so important to not see spirituality as this kind of ethereal stuff, you know, that is floating in this room. But that is really the, what we've cultivated, this releasing, this degrasping, this mindfulness. And we have to make it organic in our lives. I mean, I'm participating in some kind of a discussion forum. And recently there was this kind of note. And I thought it was so, it really showed this so much. And there was this fellow, this person saying, oh, I got this amazing experience of oneness and non-duality. And it was so wonderful, so fantastic. And da 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 But right now, I feel so awful because my girlfriend left me. <laughs> and, and you felt like the two did not meet. Kind of the, the, the amazing experience was there, the pain of the girlfriend was there, and he could not put the two together. And I think that's what it's so important. That really, to me, this is the, the gradual aspect is so important to really bring this to our daily life. And if we look, for example, in the Zen tradition, you have the ten oxerding picture. And so it's a path, a spiritual path in picture. And the eighth, the number eight, is emptiness. So you just have a circle. But what is interesting is that the path does not stop in the emptiness. After the picture of the emptiness, you have two more pictures. The next one is like a branch of uh, bamboo or just some cherry blossom. And it's called to be enlightened by all things. So it's kind of returning to the source. It's kind of like, in a way, from the emptiness, from the no-self, from the degrasping, you come back to the real world. And you have to bring that gradual practice in the real world. Bring the creative awareness of creative encounter. And so you bring the meditation anywhere. Like in the supermarket, I think that's a wonderful place to practice. The supermarket queue. You bought your thing, 
you look for the best cure, of course, you know, <laughs> choosing, and you think that one. And then you always choose the wrong one, don't you? <laughs> and so you're there, and something did not work, and the check don't go, and then you and they talk a little, and you kind of look, you kind of like that, like that. Kind of you want the thing to, to make it move. And I use it as a meditation. I just do standing meditation in the queue. Just being aware of the breath, being aware of the people around me. And it changed the experience so much. Then I have all the time in the world. So I just do as it happens. Also compassion for the cashier, for the people around, and just do the, in the meditation there. Or in other places, driving. Driving, you know, Buddhist, you put them uh, on the, in kind of in front of the wheel, and then they become something else. Mara in action, you know? And what, look what you do. You kind of drive happily, being mindful, aware. And then that guy, he goes so slowly. He does it on purpose to annoy me. <laughs> you know? And in, instead, to kind of, you know, what I think generally is that he must either have lost his way, he has a problem with his car, always, you know, kind of go slowly for whatever reason he has. He doesn't do it just to annoy me. And in a way to see how can we drive with awareness, with mindfulness, really being aware. So I think in a way the, the meditation we've done here, the degrasping, the releasing that happens, we need to continue in the daily life in order in a way to make it so it manifests more. It manifests more into wisdom and compassion. And that's why in the Oxfording picture, you have the tense picture, and it's called returning to the marketplace with gifts. And you have the, the, the little guy and the, another guy who have a big bag of gifts, and then they're going back to the world, and they're going to bring what they learn into the world. And I think what is important about this picture is that the person is adaptable. That actually they're not going to go and say, you know, you need to do meditation. This is good for you because it is good for me. Off we go. But no, it's kind of going to the marketplace and really to adapt to what we encounter. And then to have what I would call creative wise compassion. To have that creative wise response. When I was doing this research, with the nun and the women in Buddhism, this is one question I had about wisdom and compassion, since it's my theme. So one nun, old nun, and she had practiced all her life, and she was one of these kind of really intense, you know, Zen nun. And I said to her, what about compassion? She said, compassion? Forget it. Unless you awaken, no point. I thought, okay, that's one way to look at it. <laughs> Because this is a debate, you know, do we wait that we're fully enlightened and fully wise, so then our compassion is really wise, or do we do it right now? And then I heard of another nun, what created a whole women's home for nuns and all women without family. And so I asked her, you know, how come you're doing this work? I said, you see, I became a nun to practice meditation, to become awakened, and to save everybody. That was the intention. And so I went, I did the study, then I started to do meditation. And as I was doing meditation, it suddenly hit me. 
if I have to wait until I am awakened to have compassion, I might have to wait a long time. <laughs> Why not do it now? At the same time, I am trying to awaken instead to wait. And personally, I would say I'm more on that side of the equation. <laughs> do it here and now in whatever way we can. And so, in a way, this creative wise compassion, it's each of us has to see, because I think it's an innate ability to feel, to empathize, to respond, to connect, to open. And the meditation is going to help us, because first we're going to, the meditation is going to help us to be more aware of others, to go out of our self-centeredness and to really see the other, see the other suffering. Also to see the quality of the person, of the other people with myself. They have as much equality to life as me. And they're suffering as much as I am suffering. And also being available to that suffering. To me, that's critical. You might have the feeling, but when, do you, when you don't have the feeling, are you not going to be compassionate? So you know, it's having kind of this openness, this movement of awareness to the other, to the suffering. And then at the same time to see this is a compassion which is equally for self and others. And that there is a spectrum of compassion. Sometimes it's more for others, sometimes more for oneself, and sometimes in the middle. And so to see there is not just one type of compassion, but there is this creative, wise compassion. And I would say one of the first things which is important, and we, we kind of cultivated this week, with creative wise compassion is listening. To learn to listen to the, the needs of the person. What does the person need? What is it they want? What is it they need? And then to look, can I give it to them? Because there is also in the equation our limitation. But I think the listening is so important because often we might think, I know what is good for you but it might have no effect whatsoever. I had a friend, she used to come to see us regularly and she used to tell us our problem. And being who I am and I'm kind of like to, you know, to help people, then I would kind of give her lots of suggestions. You know, what about this? What about that? What about this? <laughs> and it did not make a difference. She would come back and tell me the same difficulty. Until I realized what she needed was just for me to love her. That's all she needed. She did not mean to give her a good idea. She just needed me to listen, to love her, to respect her, to be there for her. Once I saw that, I said, okay, much easier. Ah, that's much easier. I don't have to think things up. I just have to be there. So I think in a way, often when we look at compassion, we think we have to do something. Sometimes, yes, we have to do something. But sometimes we are as compassionate, not doing anything but being there with a compassionate, a caring heart. <coughs> but also, what we, what we have to be careful with compassion, as uh, Sharda was uh, talking about, you know, in the compassion meditation, we. This makes us, compassion, make us fe 
feel the pain of others. And through that, actually, he can strike something within us, what I would call kind of a sadness. But then what we have to be very careful with compassion is that we are not then taken in, the, in what I would call the poor me spiral. Everything is awful, everything is terrible, everything is painful, etc., etc. So that's why when we have compassion, we also need equanimity. We also need stability. This is very important. So that when we are the, with the suffering, we are not overwhelmed by the suffering or by the sadness of the suffering. Some years ago, I was in South Africa, and we go there regularly to teach, and generally we try to help. And so I was, we were taken to a hut with the idea that we would help these people, these families. And we go there, and the hut is so destitute. You have this old lady looking so depressed and so hopeless, and you have these two little girls who look kind of really raggedy and... There is no port, there is nothing. I mean, it was the most destitute hut I had ever seen. And I sat there, and of course, we decided to do something for the family, and now they're much better. But at that moment, I felt so sad. I felt so sad because I realized that there were so many families like this in the world who had no means of support, no way of earning anything, no income whatsoever, and totally destitute, that I could help this family, but I could not help the millions of families in the world. And what, was, what I noticed is that for two weeks, I was sad. I could feel the sadness within me. But because of the equanimity, because of the practice, I was not overwhelmed. I told the retreat, I did different things, but I could feel time to time I would look and yes, the sadness is still there. So I think when we do compassionate activity, I think it's very important to also remember the equanimity, the stability which will help us to have a creative response which won't be overwhelming us. And so in a way, to see with compassion sometimes, we have to be with, just to be with the suffering of the people. And actually, we won't be able to make any change. And we have to be able to accept that. And sometimes we can be with the suffering and we can help the suffering. And so I think we have to be careful to equate compassion with being efficacious all the time. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can just be there. We had a friend who was dying of, of leukemia. And the only thing we could do was to be there, to be there for him through being in the morphine, being half delirious, being... We just could be there. That's the only thing we could do. And this recently I read this book, which you might have heard about, uh, called the, the Soloist. And it's about uh, a journalist who is in Los Angeles and he writes a column and suddenly he sees this fellow playing a violin on the road in the middle of Los Angeles and deciding uh, to become interested in this person. And then he becomes so interested in the person that he really tried to help him in many different ways. And at the same time, this person who is in an African-American, Mr. Myers, 
highest, he is a schizophrenic para paranoiac. And what is interesting is that the, the journalists continue to help him, to help him in different ways, with the music, with this, with that. But all of the time, the journalist has this idea that he finally, at some point, can manage to convince Mr. Ayers to take the medicine, and so it will be more or less cured. And so, I, I mean, I was reading the book and I was kind of routing for uh, the journalist, you know, that, yes, 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 you know, I could see, oh, is it going to happen, is it going to happen? And what I found wonderful about the book, in one way, is that in the end, it does not happen. I mean, the, guy, the Mr. Ayers really get a better, I mean, better life, thanks to the journalist, compassion and lots of good things happen around it. But one thing, it does not cure is the illness, but it can help him to live much better with it. And I thought that was, to me, what I would call creative, wise compassion. So this is what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? You have to read the book. You see, the book by Richard Ch Shankman, Samadhi, it's a, I don't know if you've read it. Oh, it's fantastic. If you're curious about the jhanas, read it, but especially read the second part. I'm, I, I kind of read a bit of the first part, and then once he started to go on the Visu di Maga, I kind of switched off. <laughs> but I went to the back, and he interviewed more a few teachers. And you have Venerable Gunaratna, and you have Paok Sayado, and you have Westerners. And what is amazing is how much they disagree. <laughs> they all so convinced, you know. Gunaratna is totally the Visuddhimaga, forget it. Paok Sayado saying the Visuddhimaga, this is the only way, this is like that. So you have kind of these two. Pali Canon, that's all, Visuddhimaga, that's all, and what they describe is extremely different. Pauk Sayado talks of the Kalapa and the Grey Mist, and on this side, no Kalapa, no Grey Mist. <laughs> so, and also it's very interesting because that's what Richard Shankman is interested in. You know, do you need to do the jhana in order to be awakened? And so, of course, uh, some said yes, some said yes and no, some said no. <laughs> so seeing this, it confirmed my thing that personally, I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but if you think that you need to have the jhana, then go for it. <laughs> you know, and then you'll have to choose which you go to. Do you go for the calapas and the gray mist? Or do you go for, you know, because they all have different ideas. Some say you can get it quite easily. Some say, you know, you must, I mean, if you want the recipe for the jhana in daily life, it's in there. Four hours a day of meditation every day. Very simple lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the whole recipe is there. You can go for it. But I think it's important to see that you seem to, one can seem to read the text in different ways. And from the different texts, I have different ideas. And so 
Is it that the jhanas, at the time of the Buddha, I mean, this is my interpretation. My interpretation is that at the time of the Buddha, that's what everybody else did. You know, if you were to be like a kind of a real teacher in order to really compete in the spiritual world of that time, you needed to have the jhana, otherwise you, you, know, you were really not very interesting as a teacher. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation is that the Buddha had a very great ability to have the jhana. And this is what comes out of the book, that some people really are very good at it, and some people, they can bang their head forever, they won't get it. But they, those people, they can still, you know, dissolve greed, hatred, and delusion. But then they will do more the vipassana route. So, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> This is different. You see, I think uh, intensive practice, you're actually asking about intensive practice. Is intensive practice necessary for what you could call the big, big, big Buddha awakening? I mean, you even have to have a male body for that, you know, so lady, forget <laughs> it, you know? So, Again, it's what, what do you want? Can you just be, you know, the uh, Buddha, kind of have some awakening? So it depends what you're looking for. If you want the big bang, and if you're a man, then yeah, go to the monastery. You have possibly <laughs> some chance. But personally, I think that it is really motivation. It's really what do you want? It's two things. What do you want to do in your life? And also, how is your life? When I became a nun, I had nothing, no, no, I, 22, I had no responsibility. This, this woman said to me, you know, do you have a, a job? Do you have a, are you in university? Do you have family? I said, no, no, no. She said, what? You have no responsibility. If I was you, she was 55, I would become a nun, you know, because she had, she had had everything and she couldn't, she did not, was not able to become. So I became a nun and it was a great training. But personally, I think if nowadays you are a dedicated practitioner in your daily life, you can practice as much. You know, you, it, it's, and it's not just kind of the amount of sitting you do on the cushion. I mean, you, I had a friend, he, he really, he practiced hard, he really, and he had amazing stage, and then he studied amazing, he could explain the sutta fantastic, and he was a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and we used to think, well, if he had not meditated, if he had not studied, it would be even worse. So I think, it, again, where do you start? You know, what, what, at what point do you start from, you know? You could be just a lay person, and you would practice, you know, sincerely, and you could have, in a way, as much awakening as somebody who is in the monastery and banging his head against his pattern. <laughs> so I think, in a way, it's kind of what are the conditions. And also what you are aspiring to. I think in terms of wisdom and compassion, I don't think you need to go to a monastery to, pra you know, to practice so hard to do it. You can start here and now. 
and doing, you know, meditation every day, the way you listen, the way you are with your children, the way you are in your work. So personally, if you want to do intensive practice, yes, I mean, it's, it's nice to practice. <laughs> but at the same time, not doing intensive practice doesn't mean you cannot practice as well in your daily life. It's back to the motivation and the, the sincerity. I have a friend. He, he has no, I mean, he's done some intensive practice, but not major, mega, mega, mega. And he's such upstanding person. And what he tried to teach, and he's not so good at it. He's not charismatic. This is a problem. And personally, I think it's such a pity that people don't see past the non-charisma. Like this person, to me, has integrity. He, not just in terms of the practice, but in terms of his life in terms of his person, he's married, he has children, he works. And to me, I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm happy to know that he exists. Yes? Yeah, you teach the metaphor of waiting a couple of times and trying to help us approach meditation. The term waiting You see, the thing with waiting in, in English, it, it, it does not work so well. It does not work so well in terms of the, the, the metaphor. In French, it works better. Because in, uh, in French, you can, uh, you can say attendre et s'attendre. And the first one means just waiting. Waiting with a patient mind. Waiting with openness. Waiting with awareness. Not as resignation. Often there is this waiting scene as kind of, you know, often we have waiting and impatience. And then you have s'attendre, means you wait for something very specific, so something more like expectation. So maybe making a little the difference between waiting, which is more kind of, kind of being there, resting. You could say resting, waiting, just being open to what is going on to expecting something specific to happen. But what is interesting with us, and I think this is a very interesting place to practice, is when we wait. We wait, and then at the beginning we're very Buddhist. I wait, fine. I wait, fine. Watch the breath, be aware. And then suddenly something within us, I am not going to wait anymore. I am fed up. I am going. It's kind of, and I think this is a place to practice waiting, because as you say, it has such a kind of a powerful negative connotation for us. We kind of like, there is something, kind of something. And so personally, I think it's a great practice to just try to wait and not try to kind of, doesn't mean that, you know, we wait forever after, but personally, I would call it a creative waiting. <laughs> an active waiting, but not an impatient waiting. Yes? Um, my big bang from this retreat is 
was when you said, wait for the breath. And that made the waiting really clear to me that it was, and it made watching my breath really much more accessible. Yeah, this is the thing to, to be careful. Like sometimes we kind of think of watching the breath, I'm going to get this breath. <laughs> it's kind of like, and then already you've got tension. When if you think more uh, of waiting for the breath to come to you, then it's kind of more kind of again, accepting, receiving. Yeah. Okay. There is nothing else. Then we'll have the final sitting in 30 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.